0: If you've ever been to the emergency room, you have experienced triage. It's a French word that literally means sorting out. And you know what that means, that all-powerful nurse in the emergency room sorts out those who really need help and those who really don't. And I have always been in the category of they can wait for six hours. They really don't need a lot of help. Well, that's triage. Every time I've gone, I have waited. I'm convinced the next time I just need to say I was scratched by a raccoon and I've got an urge to bite somebody, and maybe they'll let me in quicker. I don't know. I read in World War II, the Allies used the system of triage in makeshift hospitals near the front lines. Much more serious, obviously, uh, than what I've experienced. And these are life-and-death situations. In fact, many that occur in emergency rooms around here are too. But it was the duty of the triage supervisor to color tag the wounded, a tag that would place them in one of three categories. One uh, color tag was used for patients who were considered hopeless. That is, nothing could be done to save their lives. and So they were tagged with a color that represented being hopeless. Another color tag stood for hopeful. That meant that the injured soldier would survive whether he received medical attention or not, and so they were sort of left to wait until more time was available. The third color tag was for patients marked as doubtful. In other words, these soldiers might survive, they might live if they are given immediate treatment. So much of the medical treatment and assistance, as you can imagine, would be directed toward this color tag, these patients tagged as doubtful. Since the front lines were, were typically working with limited staff and limited resources and certainly limited materials for surgery, medical assistance was then given primarily to soldiers who were tagged in this way who might live if they were given immediate assistance. I read of one account that was very moving. One soldier named Lou arrived at one of these makeshift hospitals. He was badly injured. He had been hit by shrapnel and one of his legs was shattered. He had lost a lot of blood. The triage supervisor who examined him made his decision and Lou was quietly coded, hopeless. His color tag basically communicated to the medical staff that he was to be made as comfortable as possible, but that was all. The nurse assigned to Lou noticed that he was conscious, which was surprising to her, and he began to talk. They struck up a conversation, and she discovered that they were both from the same area. Uh, They were both from Ohio. Ohio. Getting to know this man as a, as a real person from her home state, not just another wounded soldier, they were hurrying along, would lead this nurse to do something she was forbidden to do. She slipped into that makeshift hospital ward that night, risking her job and future career, and she changed his tag. From hopeless to doubtful. It wasn't but a few hours they realized his color chart and transported him away from the front lines to a better medical facility. And months later, minus one leg, Lou recovered and lived a full life. So grateful for the nurse who changed his tag and gave him another chance to live. Let me say something that might sound trite or predictable at this moment, but it's true and I want to say it. Jesus Christ is in the business of changing tags. Amen? When Jesus Christ came, in fact, I thought of this uh, incident in the Gospel by Luke. When he came and, and, and was pressing into the hometown of a greedy, corrupt tax collector named Zacchaeus, nobody gave him any room or space to see the Lord. So he climbed the tree. You remember, he climbed the what? The sycamore tree. You've heard the story. Jesus Christ comes under the limbs of that tree and he says, calls up, and he calls him. He says, Zacchaeus, I need to come to your house today. Zacchaeus climbs down. They go into his house. And the crowd outside immediately begins to grumble because he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a... Sinner, that's his tag. Just mark him hopeless. After lunch, a few hours, Jesus Christ comes back out on the front porch standing with this man and he says, by way of introduction, I tell you, this man is a son of Abraham. He changed his tag. And what a change it was and what it represented It was changed from hopeless to heaven-bound. I couldn't help but wonder, what's your tag today? What tag do you carry today? Now, if you've been with us over these past studies, as James has defined living faith, You've watched along as James not only defines these three different kinds of faith, but illustrates them. Dead faith, that was or is words without works. It just intellectually assents to true things, and it can, it can say the creed, it can, it can spout out the Lord's Prayer, but nothing follows. Demonic faith acknowledges the truth of Christ but it refuses a relationship with Christ. Then dynamic faith is faith we found that works, and it is a faith that works. Dead faith, we learn, moves only the intellect. Demonic faith moves the intellect and emotions, they believed and trembled. Dynamic faith moves the mind or the intellect, the heart, the emotions, and most importantly, the will. And James illustrated for us dynamic faith by pointing our attention to the life of of Abraham. Now by the time James is writing this letter, obviously uh, Abraham is the revered patriarch. He is the founding father of the faithful. Think of faith in James' generation, you think immediately of Abraham. He was the epitome of faith in action. You get to the end of Abraham's biography, And you're certainly struck by the grace of God simply because of the tests of faith he failed. And there were many of them. But you're also struck even more so by the tests of faith in which he succeeded. By faith, he left his father and his homeland. By faith, he believed God's covenant promise. By faith, he He offered up that son of the promise, Isaac, to God as a burnt offering, only God stayed his hand. You might come to the end of that kind of biography and conclude that God will never do anything with you or me. We might as well not try to exercise dynamic faith. We can never measure up to the father of the faithful. We can never do that. He walked with God for 50 years. No wonder he's the example. James, we understand why he's the illustration of dynamic faith. James anticipates his congregation responding that way. And so led by the Spirit of God, he concludes his illustration of dynamic faith by giving us an entirely different kind of person. He's shown us the best of life, and he will show us the worst of life. In James chapter 2 and verse 25, James provides his final illustration of dynamic faith. Faith that does not save, but faith that proves salvation has come. And that's been the point of James saying we are justified before, as it were, the eyes of men that we are indeed redeemed. Notice what he says here in verse 25. In the same way... Was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now James could not give us anybody more opposite to Abraham in every way than Rahab. Think for a moment of all of the contrasts. Abraham was a man, Rahab was a woman. I thought I'd start with something really obvious. As we talk about this. Abraham is the original Hebrew. Rahab is an idolatrous Gentile. Abraham is a great leader. Rahab was a run-of-the-mill citizen. Abraham is at the top of his social order. Rahab is pretty close to the gutter. Abraham is respectable and honorable. Rahab is... Dishonorable. Abraham is the kind of man you'd think wanted everything to do with God. Rahab is the kind of woman you'd think wanted nothing to do with God. Assuming you knew nothing about Rahab's biography, you would at least know from what James provides that we're talking about, as illustrations of dynamic faith, a patriarch, and suddenly it shifts... To a prostitute. And there is quite a shift to go from the patriarch to a prostitute. But that's part of what James has in mind. You see, the grace of God and the genuine demonstration of faith can take place in and through the the life of a redeemed Jew and a redeemed Gentile. An honorable man, a dishonorable woman, when we meet her first. They are really both Surprising saints. They should be. The trouble is, our understanding of redemption is a little skewered. We'd think Abraham has a leg up. He's easy to save. Rahab, now that'd be tough. No, they're both, they are both trophies of grace. And to this day, let me encourage you your faith is not handicapped in any way by your ancestry. Your your family name doesn't help or hurt you when it comes to demonstrating personal dynamic faith in a living God. God does not look at you and say, well, if you'd come from better stock, maybe I could do something with you. He is not handicapped by your ancestry, your pedigree, your past resume. And you might not pick up on that With an illustration of Abraham. James knows we will all be struck with that truth by his illustration of Rahab. Now, to better appreciate this illustration of Rahab by James, we need to travel back to the introduction of Rahab by Joshua. So take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Joshua. It's page 178, (laughs) my New American Standard Foundations publication Bible. If you don't have one of these, it might not be in there. I don't know. You can check. If it is, it'll be after Genesis, Exodus. Say it with me. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Matthew, Mark. Oh, wait. <laughs> if that tripped you up, a good New Year's resolution might be to memorize the books of the Bible. That I- Great thing to do with your kids, by the way. They'll love leaving you in the dust. It occurred to me as I... Some of you are still looking. It's, um, it's where the pages are stuck together because I've never asked you to turn to the book of Joshua before, have I? I <laughs> didn't think I knew it existed. I did a little checking, by the way. It has been a long time since I asked this congregation to turn to the book of Joshua. Checked my notes, found that I preached through this book of the Bible 19 years ago. Back when I had hair <laughs> and I didn't have glasses. I must have, I must have preached... A lot faster back then because we got through this entire book in 12 sermons. All 24 chapters in 12 sermons. That's just not right. Uh. <laughs> well, if you weren't here 19 years ago, if you haven't studied the Bible, that book of the Bible on your own, let me give you a very quick background. Joshua has taken over the leadership of Moses. He's passed, Moses has passed off the scene The Israelites, because of their disobedience and their lack of faith, have been wandering now in the wilderness for 40 years under the care and guidance of God. But there, just long enough for all of those who disbelieve to die. And now they're ready to enter the promised land, which, by the way, was promised to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. The promised land, however, at this point in time is, is inhabited and has been for time. But it's, it's inhabited by idolatrous, wicked, brutal nations that aren't too excited about this little promise thing to Abraham. They're not impressed. And they're not too convinced about the coming judgment of God that they have heard about now for decades. We're going to learn that from, from Rahab's own personal testimony. But Joshua decides to begin by sending out two spies to check out the land. And they would go to the very first city that they're about to encounter. A city prepared, by the way, for battle. A city surrounded by what seems to have been a double set of walls spanned by wooden beams. A city by the name of Jericho. We read in Joshua chapter 2... The middle part of verse 1, that these spies are sent out and they go to spy out the land. And these two men went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. The word for harlot here is the Hebrew word zonah, which can be translated harlot or innkeeper. There are some that, that, that grab that and relieve immediately the tension of where these men have gone to hide problem is the word for harlot, in reference to Rahab in the New Testament, in both passages where she appears, is the word porne, which gives us our word fornicator, transliterated to give us our word fornication. It always has an immoral context. She was not keeping an inn. She was running a brothel. Why would these men go there? I I believe verse 2 holds Some of the answer, look there, it was told the king of Jericho saying, behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. When these men evidently came, they crossed that ford near Jericho, the Jordan. They were spotted. They were watched. They were followed by the king's secret police. They knew exactly when the men entered the city. They knew exactly where the men had gone. The spies evidently knew they had been spotted. We aren't told when they discovered that, but, but they, they ran as it were and they made it to Rahab's Bravo, where they asked to be hidden. Where would someone go and not be asked any questions, one author suggested. Where, where could he go for shelter and remain anonymous? Those are interesting thoughts, but I believe they missed the greater point. They are obviously led by God to turn at that corner and go up that alley and turn at this corner and knock on that door. Because they are going to arrive at a house where the only woman in the entire city lives who is ready to believe in the God of Israel. In fact, we'll see your testimony in a moment in a moment, she's already believed. She is literally the only person in all of Jericho who would be sympathetic to their cause. God knew her heart. God knew her desire. And they appear here. It's no coincidence that they rush into this place of business and hope for the best. Now, they're probably... Surprised to find a woman not only ready to declare her faith in God but ready to demonstrate it in the, in, in the remarkable way that, that she does. And James finds it remarkable so much so that as he thinks of illustrations under the guidance of the spirit to talk about real living faith, he goes back to this event and a woman named Rahab. Look at verse 3. The king of Jericho sent word To Rahab saying, bring out the men who've come to you, who've entered your house, for they've come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. Already done that. She said, well, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Now, you notice in her answer that she's, she's lying like a rug, right? And you might immediately feel some other tension. How does she end up in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11? Again, this is another sidebar. We'll address this very, very quickly. And by the way, I didn't address either of these past issues in my first sermon series. That's why we got through it in 12 sermons. Biblical ethicists talk about a hierarchy of ethics they believe would be demonstrated here by Rahab. In other words, there's a time when a higher moral principle is kept even if it requires disobedience to a lower moral principle. It's, it's, not, a, it's not an ironclad argument. The tension won't go away. But perhaps this is what's happening. Think of it this way. You're living in Holland in, in 1939. And uh, the Nazis show up at your doorstep and ask you if you're hiding any Jews upstairs in your closet. You say, no. Are you sure, Mr. Ten Boom? I'm almost finished with a a two-volume autobiography of Charles Spurgeon, probably one of the most well-known pastors in London during the 1800s. At one point in his ministry, and up until his death, his brother James... Uh, Served as his co pastor. Spurgeon spent literally half of the year sick and recuperating from gout and a number of other things. Uh, One evening, Spurgeon was at his home and uh, the housekeeper wasn't around, and Spurgeon happened to be walking by and, and he opened the front door, and in jumped a man brandishing this very large knife. And he announced, I have come to kill Charles Spurgeon. And Charles said, well, he's not here. (laughs) And the man said, well, who are you? And he said, well, I'm his brother James. Which I'm sure his brother didn't appreciate later (laughs) than him saying that. He eventually convinced him he was his brother. The man ran back out the door and was caught a few blocks later. Now, you say, well, you know, Spurgeon should have told the truth. Maybe the knife would have broken. Or maybe he was supposed to have died. We don't know. It doesn't answer all the questions. She could have said, I've got them upstairs hiding under stalks of flax. And God could have kept them invisible. So there is tension here. But She convinces the guards, perhaps believing there's a higher moral principle at stake, and they leave. Look at verse 9. She goes up on the roof and she says... I know that the Lord has given you the land, and the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. Interesting, she chooses the names of God here. I I know the Lord has given you the land. She has more insight than the king. Verse 10, we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. What you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed, that had only happened recently. The Red Sea had happened 40 years earlier. But when we heard it, verse 11, Our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. Now listen to her testimony. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven and on earth. Can you imagine? Moses would have been rolling over in his grave had he been buried to hear this. I couldn't help but stagger. I had never seen this before. Forty years earlier, Moses sends out 12 spies. Joshua was one of them. Joshua and Caleb, the two spies, are the only ones who will enter the promised land. Everybody else dies because of of unbelief. But they go out there and they come back and the majority report says, We'll never make it. We can't survive. We're terrified by these people. Now Rahab, 40 years later, says, When we heard you crossed the sea, we were terrified of you. We didn't think we'd survive. We've been in fear for 40 years. Because we know your God is much more powerful than any of ours. Rahab effectively says they have been following the exploits of God through the children of Israel. They'd heard how God parted the Red Sea, drawn the Egyptian army, and now here it is 40 years later. Rahab is revealing their perspective, our hearts, 40 years ago. Melted in fear. Can you imagine all of those Israelites who died in the wilderness not allowed to enter the promised land because they lacked dynamic faith. They knew the words but they would not act upon them. And here, 40 years later, there is found among these pagans a woman of faith. She not only believed, but she acted. For the sake of time, you know, she, she helped the spies to escape. She followed their command to hang a scarlet cord out her window. I don't want us to fall into the trap of of allegorizing everything we see, but I did find it interesting that the word in the Hebrew language for cord, the normal word, is bypassed in Joshua chapter 2, verse 12. And the word that's chosen is the word most often translated in the Old Testament by the word hope. Hope. This is your only hope. And, and she will stake everything upon that hope. The cord is called in the same verse a pledge, a sign. Again, unusual Hebrew language. It's the same word used in that Passover scene in Exodus more than 40 years earlier. The death angels coming, those who have the sign, the same word, the sign is used in reference to the blood on the doorpost. Those who have that sign, anybody in that home survives. These words are not coincidences. It's Passover language. It's something she has yet to fully understand. But these are are terms of hope. And redemption, and this woman is saved from death by her faith in God, and she will learn later all the redemptive truths. The Israelites know that she more than likely doesn't know, but she does know that God alone is her hope. Another thing struck me these Israelites over these 40 years, had seen the miracles. They had been delivered time and time again. They had seen the Shekinah glory. They had seen the manna. They had been fed. They had water out of a rock. They had seen it. They had been there. They had experienced. This prostitute had only heard about it. She had only heard. And she believed. She was ready before the spies ever showed up. She's ready to walk away from her idols and her customers. She's sick of her life. She knows the Israelites are coming. Everybody knows. She knows and believes that they are following the true and living God. And somewhere in between the lines, she has had some kind of rough and rugged conversation with God Saying what she's declaring here, more than likely to him, I don't know much about you, but I know you are the God of heaven and I know you are the sovereign over all of earth. If you can accept me and forgive me, I will give my life to following you. Would you please change my tag from hopeless to hopeful from a hopeless harlot to a forgiven follower before long the Israelites arrive outside the city gates in fact if you turn over to chapter 6 you notice in verse 1 that they have the city tightly shut I mean they've got every crevice filled they've got the gates double barred no one went out, and no one came in. They are not going to surrender. These Amorites are specifically mentioned in Scripture as an idolatrous nation known for child sacrificing. They are cruel and brutal, and most importantly, they hated the God of Israel, and we've built our wall to keep you out. Israel will, will be acting as the tool of judgment in the hand of God to these nations. And it occurred to me in the the context of our study on the different kinds of faith that the city of Jericho is at this moment filled with faith. It is filled with demonic faith. They know the truth. They've heard the stories they're convinced they're true. They, they know the God of Israel exists. They, they have been following the exploits of God through these people. But they will not open the gates. They will not lay down their arms. They will not surrender. They will not follow that God. Not on our lives. And with one wave of his sovereign hand the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. Which means either the fact that the little section of the wall upon which sat Rahab's house is remaining, which would be another miracle, or her home was in the wall on the ground level. It remained intact while the walls fell around her home. None of it fell upon her. I love this reunion of sorts in verse 22 of chapter 6. Joshua said to the two men who'd spied out the land, go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all that she has out of there as you have sworn to her. And it wonderful that Joshua allows these two men whose lives she saved to now go and keep their promise personally. Now, if you wonder whether or not Rahab was able to convince anybody to get inside her house because judgment's coming and only anybody living in here is safe. Notice verse 23. I love this. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out, here it comes, Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. They also brought out all her relatives And placed them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire and all that was in it. However, verse 25, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all that she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. Meaning, while this is recorded, she's still alive. This scene, by the way, becomes a metaphor of judgment and redemption. All who do not personally surrender to God will one day be judged with everlasting fire. Those who will be spared like this harlot named Rahab have surrendered to God, and here she is. She has that scarlet cord hanging from her window. You could see it waving in the wind. By faith... Hebrews records. The harlot Rahab perished not with those who believed not. That's the story of the gospel right there. Her faith in God preserved her place in eternity. Her demonstration of faith in God preserved for her a place in history. We're still studying her life today. And not all of us can identify with, with Abraham, someone like him, right? But all of us can identify with someone like, like Rahab. The truth is known, whether you admit it or not, we have all played the harlot. We have worshipped other gods. We have followed after idols. Certainly the chief idol is our own selves. Sinning against the true and living God. But to this day, all who hang out the cord of hope, as it were, in the redemptive plan of God, when you come to place your faith in Him alone, you are spared His judgment. And He changes your tag. So the Apostle Paul would write to church after church, In the New Testament and greet all the believers by calling them by their new tag, saints in Christ Jesus. Saints. So now live as you're tagged. Live as saints. James wraps up his concluding statement back in that letter in chapter 2 and verse 26. By saying for you or for just as the body without the spirit is dead. So also faith without works is dead. He's effectively saying that Abraham's and Rahab's acts of faith were like spirit to a body. The life principle that animates a living human being. Take away that immaterial part of who you are and you, your body is a corpse. That's what he says dynamic faith is to the believer's life. Faith is the animating principle. It moves us to action. It provokes us toward a living demonstration of faith in a living God. That's the exhortation of James to the believer as he describes, defines, and illustrates faith. If you believe, behave like it. That's his point. I want to take one more look before we wrap up James' study and this chapter. And you don't have to turn back, but I want to go to Jericho one more time. Joshua informs us that, that Rahab and all her family are put outside the camp where they stood gathered around them were all their family members. She had been quite a convincing woman. You've got all the cousins, nieces and nephews, brothers and wives, grandpa and grandma. They're all suitcases, blankets and pillows and all the stuff. And they're all in one big huddled mass with no doubt tears of shock and relief. I wonder what Rahab thought as she stood there watching her city and, more importantly, her past burn away. Her profession of faith would lead to a different profession in life. But I wonder if she thought while she was standing there, would these Israelites, with all their strange customs, a foreign people to me, would their God that I know and believe is the God of heaven and earth, would, would I be received? Would I be accepted as a proselyte Gentile believer? Will he accept my faith in him? Would he ever In fact, it isn't long before she's the talk of the nation. A heroine for dynamic faith, who against all odds, against the king and their army, she saved the spies. She turned to the true and living God. And there's more to her biography. She meets, she marries a godly Jewish man, named Salmon. Imagine he chose a converted Gentile to be his wife. And they would have a son. They would name him Boaz. And Boaz would grow up, and would you believe it, he would choose a converted Gentile woman to be his wife named Ruth. Rahab the harlot would become the great, great grandmother of King David. She would show up again in Matthew chapter 1 along with her daughter-in-law Ruth in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And don't miss this, the God-man who took on flesh with blood flowing in his veins, not only Jewish. Oh, listen, there are strains of Gentile blood in there too. And he will choose a bride. And guess what? It includes Gentiles. Like you and me. For all who will believe Jew and Gentile, He changes our tag from hopeless to hope-filled, from abandoned to accepted, from lost to found, from someone with a checkered past to someone with a glorious future, from sinner, to saint. Amen? Amen. Father, we're grateful that you led by your spirit, James, to include not just an illustration of someone that we would assume would be a great man of faith and not be able to identify with, perhaps leaving us with a sense that Dynamic faith might be beyond our reach, but you went to that little brothel and took from that a monument of your grace, a trophy of dynamic faith who against everything. Rahab believed. She becomes a living illustration that no matter who we are, no matter what our past, There is forgiveness if we stake our faith upon that scarlet line that we know fully represents the blood of our Lamb, you, our Lord. And you have changed our tag, Father, and, and, and you've challenged us through James' letter that it means not so much. In here, it is to mean everything out there, where we already know our world is tagged in a multitude of ways. Would you lead us this week to people in whose hearts you are already at work, surprising people? who will become surprising saints. Do you allow us to live up to our tag this week to accept and act upon this exhortation by James and this biography by Joshua. If you don't know Christ personally, the gates of your heart are shut up, every crevice filled in And you have said, I will not surrender. Let me invite you to open the gates of your heart and lay down your arms and surrender to the one who will win and who will judge all who do not believe. Father, as believers, would you do a work in our hearts and lives so that we obey you and submit to you and surrender to you Not so much in here, but out there.